Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, Free the People's very own Logan Albright talks about his new book, Our Servants, Our Masters, and how it is that government paternalism screws up everything. Check it out. Today in studio, we have none other than Logan Albright. So your, your, uh, your book actually has a lot of uh, my favorite school of economics in it, Austrian economics. That's right. Which may be why we've worked together for so long. Might be. It's possible. Uh, you name drop, drop Hayek and Mises and, and, and someone that I don't hear as much from, Carl Menger. And I suspect Carl Menger would, would have an opinion about uh, whiskey as a means of exchange and a store of value because he he was he was the founder of the Austrian school who did a lot of work on the question of money mm. and he basically said and I think this this theme in one way or another um, threads throughout your book he basically said that money's whatever people want it to be absolutely and then Mises had a whole treatise on money it, it was one of his first big books about and he had this theory that money has to start as something that has intrinsic value. It, it, like paper money couldn't have just started as paper money. It had to start with gold or something that people actually value for its own sake. So whiskey is a good example of that because people like to drink whiskey. But if you're not going to drink it or if you have more than you can drink, you can trade it for other things. So um, and and Menger wrote extensively about Bitcoin, as I remember. <laughs> yeah, he didn't quite predict Bitcoin, but uh, I think he would have been interested in it if it had come around during his lifetime. So give us the theme here. Um, this... Uh this sounds sort of ominous. Our servants are masters. What what are you writing about in this book? So this is a book that's about language and it's about hierarchies. So I know you're a fan of George Orwell and I am as well. And he talked about how important language is to culture. And in 1984, the government has invented this whole new language called Newspeak that attempts to strip out words that people could use to potentially be revolutionary. And his theory was that if you don't have a word for something in a language, it's harder to think about it. It's hard to, harder to communicate it. It's harder to use that word as a weapon. Um, and it restricts the ideas that people have. And I think there's, that's partially true. I mean, we can also we can think about things that we don't have words for. I'm sure you've had that experience of trying to express a thought that you don't have the right word for. But I think there's something to it as well. And the words we use matter. The words we use inform the ideas we think. And uh, I wanted to look at the phrase public servant, which you hear a lot. And really look, dive into it and see what people actually mean by it. And when you look at people who call themselves public servants, more often than not, and this isn't all the time, there's plenty of good people out there who call themselves public servants, but more often than not, the term is a euphemism for people who are trying to tell you what to do with your life, trying to control how you behave. Yeah, it's a, I, and I think like I can, I can imagine all sorts of public servants um, that probably wouldn't use the phrase because it's self it's it's almost self-aggrandizing it's right. like i'm not doing this for myself i'm i'm doing it for you honestly i i really have your best interests in mind right. and i i don't benefit at all from this and and every single politician and every single bureaucrat and and every s single dictator usually embraces that i'm doing this for you right. kind of thing and what i find interesting about it is it's a it's a hierarchy that's been turned on its head and if you listen to someone like Jordan Peterson, he talks a lot about hierarchies and he says that hierarchies are inevitable in any kind of form of life. And I think that's true. There's all kinds of hierarchies that exist and they're not inherently bad. They're necessary to get things done. We have a guest on the set here. Um, but this is the first book endorsement that Rourke has ever done. Yes. By the way. So it's a, it's a, a, it's a big deal. And I'm a big fan of him. It's a big deal. And, you know, cats are libertarians and dogs are communists. So if a dog was endorsing your book, I probably wouldn't even be talking about it. Yeah. And I heartily endorse your theory that cats are libertarians as well. I'm very much a cat person. As he gets into your whiskey. <laughs> but as I was saying, um, hierarchies aren't a bad thing. Like we have a hierarchy at Free the People where you're in charge and I'm working for you, but it's because we're, mutu we're exchanging mutually beneficial services. We've agreed on this voluntarily and it works for both of us. And that's a good thing. But hierarchies go wrong when you don't recognize them for what they are or you try to turn them on their heads. And I think this public servant idea, this pretense that people in roles of government or roles of authority are actually working for us is very dangerous because you're tricking people, you're deceiving people into thinking that someone who's actually in charge of you, uh, you think that they're working for you when they're really not. So when, when I was reading this book, and, and by the way, it's a little hard to take you seriously with, with a big 
fluffy gray cat on your lap. But yeah, it works you know, for Bond villains and and Hemingway. I mean, yeah. so there's a there's a tradition. <laughs> um, it seems like, you know, when I read your book, I I, I was kind of reminded of of the Matrix because you're you're kind of red pilling us here mm. because the entire mythology of of government and authorities says that that certain people can be trusted right certain people are smarter than the rest of us certain people are less self-interested than the rest of us and and some people just know better and and that's the the, the whole premise of of certainly big government yeah um, that that we're gonna we're gonna sort of do what's good for you even if you don't even know that it's good for you yeah and I think the goal of the book is largely to just get people to re-examine the way they think about the world. You know, a lot of people who write these kind of books, they have a political message in mind. They want to uh, convince you to vote for somebody or support a certain policy. That's not really the case in this way. I just want you to th- rethink about the way you think about the world. Um, I think that the way you affect change in the country or in the world is through public opinion, and it's through having a change in mass consciousness. I don't really think voting does all that much. Um, I don't really think um, kind of these isolated issue campaigns do all that much, but I think if you have a massive shift in the way people think about fundamental truths, that's how you really affect change, and that's a, it's a heavy lift. It's not something that's easy to do, but my little small goal with this book is just to get people to, to think about the phrase public servant and when they use it to take a moment to reconsider what they're actually saying and what, they're, what it actually means. I think we can even assume that that any politician that throws around that word too much probably has has more um, sinister aspirations. And and one thing about your book, you you take it a step further than even public choice theory, which which argues that that when it comes to political action, um, political actors and both elected officials, bureaucrats, and even people that lobby the government. Um, you know when they when they say talk about the public interest, they're really talking about their personal interests. Yeah. But I feel like you take it a step further and, and suggest that there's there's almost something sinister and manipulative about about people that want to tell us how to live our lives. There's an urge that exists in a lot of people, and I don't really understand it myself because I don't have it at all. But there's an urge that people get upset if other people are living in a way that they don't approve of, and they want to change it, they want to fix it. They want to force people to conform to the way they think they should live. And a lot of people have this urge. And, you know, I know you love to talk about Hayek on this channel. He has this whole theory about why the worst people rise to the top in a democracy. Um, and it, it's that people with that urge, the people who have the urge to tell you what to do, to run your life for you, they're the ones who are motivated enough to go through the hell of running for office and trying to get into positions of power. Because people who want to leave people alone don't really have that much of an incentive to go through the the crazy nightmare of trying to become an elected official. But someone like Hillary Clinton, who has outright said, you know, I want to I want you to live the way I want you to live. Basically, um, she's got a big incentive to spend all that money, spend all that time, spend their whole lives effectively trying to get in a position where they can enforce their will on the people. Yeah. So let, let's talk about a couple examples, because there we'll start with some extreme examples that that you talk about in the book. So that that people understand what we're talking about, and and we just had our friend Lee on the show talking mm-hmm. about growing up under Mao's China, and you tell some of the stories um, that that Lee has spoken about about sort of that 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 godlike attitude that Mao had towards his own people. They they weren't they weren't equals in any way. They were they were really cogs in a in a machine that he was going to manipulate from the top down. Yeah, um, I think that's a really important point because to me, one of the reasons that I'm a libertarian and I, is I, that I really think that there's something special about the human mind and the human spirit. I'm not really a religious guy, but I would say that there's something like a divine spark in human nature. And uh, one of my favorite political theorists and economist, Murray Rothbard, had this line about how if men were like ants, there would be no reason to care about freedom. Because if we were all just you know unthinking automata who go to work and come home and breed and die – there's no no point in actually caring about freedom because this everyone's the same. We're not all the same. We're all unique. We all do different things. We all have this creative creative energy inside of us that leads us to do great, inspiring, wonderful things. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why, when you have people who are totalitarians like Mao, have be, or like Stalin or any of these communist states, they're very hostile to religion and they want to supplant religion because if if they view you as a unique, special 
divine spark individual, they can't then view you as a cog in the machine, a tool just to be plugged into a certain slot in order to realize their vision. And I think that's kind of the mindset that goes into these totalitarian leaders. They, they don't think you're special. They think you're just like everybody else. You're all just numbers that can be rearranged in an equation to realize their vision. You know, actually, um, a couple of years ago, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods and a and an, an unapologetic uh, free market capitalist, was debating a Marxist professor. And I, I'd never heard of the guy, but supposedly he's one of the top professors. Uh, and he was at some Ivy League school, of course. And it, it was shocking to me how much he conveyed what you just said. He he very much viewed society as an aggregate chunk of stuff. It was mm-hmm. it was a singular um, thing. And and when he was when he was crunching the data on stage, he didn't even mention the fact that he's talking about people. Right. And and he and, and the whole idea was to manipulate and and get people to do what he wanted them to do because he was talking about so-called excess wealth. And he, he really didn't have any way to sep- separate it out be- right. because he was just looking at the it's aggregate. It's not your wealth or my wealth, it's just wealth that it's exists wealth. out there for some expert to then move around to where they want it to be to create yeah. the most efficient allocation according to them. But you know, Mao didn't just think he could manip- manipulate the economy, he thought that he could manipulate mother nature. And you tell that story. Yeah, um, and this is a story that's been told on this channel before, but it's it's shocking when you hear about it, just the hubris of it. You know, he would try to redirect rivers because he said this river doesn't go where it needs to go, where I want it to go. I'm going to make it go over there. Like that's a huge engineering challenge to try to redirect a river. People don't realize how much goes into the formation of a river. Why a river is where it is? It's there for a reason. It's there because it's on a rocky bed where the water can flow past. Um, what Mao did was redirect the rivers using people, slaves, essentially digging uh, channels for the river to go through. But because it wasn't a rocky foundation, it was just soil, the river would just sink into the ground and disappear. So you had all the water just dry up and go away. Um, He was worried that the birds were eating all the crops. So he instructed all the and ordered all the Chinese children to get up every morning and go out and kill the birds that they could find. Kill all the birds you can find. which is crazy. That's it's an insane lunatic plan. But not only is it an insane lunatic plan, it doesn't work because birds serve an important function in the world. That's why they're there. And the birds, it turns out, they eat the locusts and the pests that would otherwise destroy the crops. So without the birds, the crops all got eaten by pests and everybody starved to death. And you have yeah. the greatest mass famine in human history. Yeah. And I, the reason I like or uh, am appalled by that story, I, I like telling that story because... I think it explains to uh, young people that, that really don't think about the world in terms of economics, but would be horrified to imagine um, some government authoritarian um, mandating from the top down, today we will kill all the birds. And like, it's it's crazy, but it's it's more than crazy, it's evil because he's, as you were saying earlier, these, these, these communist governments replace religion with the state yeah. as God. And in this case, Mao was God. He, you know, he wrote a little red book and, and if he said it, it must be true. And the consequences were, were humanitarian disaster. Yeah. And they don't even give you the courtesy that religion gives you of saying that you're made in my image and you're a special, unique individual. Yeah. They just say you, you work for me. Yeah. That's it. The, but so everyone agrees that that's bad. And I, I'm assuming that there's even, even the most ardent socialist in this country would hopefully admit that Mao uh, committing birdicide was was a horrific thing. Um, but it applies to almost everything the government does to manipulate our behavior. Yeah, it's all based on them thinking they know better than the rest of us. And I have a section in the book on economics, which is may seem a little bit out of place with the rest of the book because – not that many economists call themselves public servants, but there are some economists who work for public policy institutions or universities or governments. And there's this whole new school of economics called behavioral economics. And basically the goal of behavioral economics is to find ways to get you to change your behavior so that there is a more efficient outcome, according to the economists. Um, Economists love to optimize things. They make you study calculus in grad school because they think that you can optimize things. And so these behavioral economists think they can optimize society by changing human behavior. And what they've done is they realize that they can't outright force people to do what they want them to do, uh, not easily anyway. 
but they think they can manipulate them using psychology. So there's this kind of fusion between psychology and economics. And the key proponent of this is uh, Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book Nudge. And I find this a really evil concept because what he's saying is we're going to subtly rearrange your environment. We're going to move things around in a certain way to basically trick you into doing what you want. we want you to do. So there's things like, well, we want people to be organ donors uh, when they sign up for their driver's licenses. And right now, if you want to be an organ donor, you say, I want to be an organ donor. Uh, but they say, well, instead of doing that, let's say you're automatically an organ donor unless you want to actively opt out, knowing that most people are lazy and most people won't actively opt out. And that you know, kind of sounds a little bit benign because it's just changing an opt-in to an opt-out. But the goal is really sinister because what you're doing is you're you're just trying to change people's behavior through very subtle ways that they won't even realize that they're being manipulated. They won't realize that their behavior is being changed. And they do things like um, in school lunches, they want to put the healthy foods up front and put the unhealthy foods in the back to try to trick kids into eating the healthy foods first. And a lot of these things don't sound like a big deal on their own, but you end up with a society that is aggressively trying to manipulate its citizens into behaving a certain way instead of letting people make their own choices and letting people do what they want to do. As, like you think about actually applying that concept to something like uh, music and, and musical choices and, and the government deciding what you can and can't listen to, that also sounds absurd, but history says that, that it actually, um, you know, Castro banned the Beatles, for instance. And Soviet the, Union is infamous for the amount of approved music and unapproved music that they had. You know, all the great, there's all these great modernist Russian composers like Shostakovich, and, you know, they're, they're fantastic artists, but they were not allowed because they were too modernist and they weren't traditional and they weren't nationalistic enough. Uh, so, yeah, you, the government controlling art is always a big part of trying to manipulate people's behavior because art is inspiring. Yeah. And art inspires people to think new thoughts and have new ideas and do new things and maybe even to revolution. And We can't have that. we got to keep everybody comfortable and safe and uh, complacent. So you mentioned uh, um, economics and, and, and the chapter is really about Austrian economics and, and this idea um, that the – the Austrians push, push, which is methodological subjectivism. Yeah. And and explain that and, and how that applies to this, this idea that you can top-down decide people's behavior. Okay, so first of all, I should say Austrian economics is a branch of economics that was founded in Austria, unsurprisingly, by Karl Menger. And uh, it was taken up by Friedrich Hayek and it was taken up by Ludwig von Mises. And it's a branch that really stresses human action and human behavior as opposed to numbers and math and equations and optimization. Uh, and they don't teach it in school. I have a master's in economics. You have a master's in economics. They don't teach it in universities. You have to go out on your own and find these texts and if you want to learn the style of economics because they're more interested in teaching you statistical methodology in school nowadays than actually teaching you how to think about how humans behave and how humans act. Um, and the key insight to Austrian economics is that we all have a scale of values that's different from each other. And what I value is going to be different from what you value, and there's no objective way for me to say what I value is better than what you value. So if I prefer to drink Irish whiskey and you prefer to drink scotch, there's no way to say you're wrong and I'm right. We can just say they have different preferences. And so any kind of effort to optimize across individuals to try to get people to do what's efficient can't actually succeed because you have no way of knowing what is right for each individual because each individual has his own preferences, his own scale of values that's going to be different from everybody else's, and only that individual is in a position to evaluate whether something is good or bad for him. Yeah, and it, it applies to, to all of these attempts to socially re-engineer people's behavior. I, I think a lot of people would be confused as to why what Cass Sunstein proposes is so insidious. And it's because nobody wants the same thing. And nobody knows what people want unless the very process of people figuring stuff out is allowed to, is allowed to proceed. There's a great line from Mises in a couple of his books, actually, that I use all the time, where he talks about irrationality. And people often criticize economists for saying for assuming that people act rationally and i think there's a confusion between the word rational and the word logical um, but mises says rationality is your ability to make a decision or take an act with a aim to achieving a specific goal and he says there is no such thing as irrational action it's a contradiction in terms because if i act to achieve a goal and you disagree with my goal you can't say that i'm irrational all you can say is that you disagree with my goal so if I choose to drink water and you choose to drink wine, I can't say that you're wrong for wanting that. I can just say I would do it differently in your place. 
there's no way to objectively, from a third-party standpoint, say what that guy's doing is irrational. You can just say, I don't agree with what he's doing. I wouldn't do it if I were him. So and this is one area where I disagree with Mises because clearly wine, good wine, is, is better than water. I, I feel like that's objective. I think that's true. It's yes. sort of like the cats versus dogs things. I yeah. mean, there are, there are truths that, that I will not subject to the, uh, the whims of the masses. Right. And whenever you have something that people are, are criticizing as irrational, it usually comes down to majority opinion. It's the majority says we don't like that, therefore we're going to classify it as irrational. The whole history of mental illness is based on this concept. It's a political concept. It's not a medical concept. It's the idea that we have a majority against you. We don't like what you're doing. Therefore, what you're doing is crazy. Therefore, we can persecute you for what you're doing. And you've seen this all throughout history. The Soviet Union did it like crazy with political dissenters, people who were not loyal to the party, people who were capitalists. They said... They didn't just say, we disagree with these people, they're wrong. They said, these people are crazy, we're going to lock them up in institutions. And they, and they wrapped it in the language of science as if... Yeah, exactly. That's the insidious thing about it. simply true. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't know, up until 1987, I think, uh, homosexuality was listed as a mental disease in the American Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychiatrists use to classify mental illnesses. You could be involuntarily treated for being homosexual. You could be force-fed pills. You could be given shock treatment um, against your will because you were considered to be deviant in a way that was scientifically, you know, was scientifically provable that your behavior was wrong, crazy, irrational. Yeah. You said 1987? 1987, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. The Let that sink in for a minute. And, that, and I think that applies to I'm, – I'm, you know, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about uh, one of my favorite political whipping boys, uh, Jeff Sessions, and he apparently has announced that he's going to run for Senate. He mm. just he's like a zombie. He won't leave us alone. He just keeps coming back and back and back when you think he's finally gone. But the the, the one thing he said that just pissed me off as, as someone that's that's been involved in on the patient side of healthcare quite a bit, um, you know, he said good people don't smoke marijuana which is is a fairly objective scientific assessment of, <laughs> of who should and who shouldn't. Yeah, and I don't know where Jeff Sessions gets the moral authority to decide that from in the first place. We should point out that there's an immense amount of construction going on in your alley outside of your studio right now. So yeah, well, I assume it's Jeff Sessions about yeah. to uh, raid the studio for trash-talking him. The, uh, but, but the other one, which, which I think is, is even more dangerous is when he announced his war on opioids and, mm. and the government, and, and it wasn't just him, but he was, he was the cheerleader for all of this. He, he had this idea that, and he, he said, um, people take too many opioids. Mm-hmm. America takes too many opioids. And so he's, he's sort of aggregated this all. There's too many, and the government policy today is, is cutting the aggregate production and distribution of opioids, legal opioids, the right. kind that you get in the hospital during surgery. And I forget what the number is. They've, they've cut it in by some dramatic way. And he's like, you just don't need them. In fact, you should, uh, like for some surgeries, you should just bite a stick. <laughs> and it sounds moronic. It's, it's barbaric. It's, it's crazy. It sounds moronic, but but he's making this 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 sort of value judgment that that people just don't need these things. And, and we as libertarians would say, you know what? Um, I have no idea what you should be doing with your life. Um, if, if you're a friend of mine or if you're my spouse or if you're my son or daughter, I'm certainly going to express my opinion. But, mm-hmm. but this idea that you would um, impose your, your sort of personal preferences on someone you've never heard of is just like, I I think that's just awful. Well, pain is the ultimate subjective experience, right? There's no way to experience another person's pain, whether it's physical or mental or whatever. And the idea that you can say, well, I know that you don't need those opioids because I I can assess your pain better than you can is, is just insane. I don't know why anybody thinks that they're able to make that judgment. And I have a section in the book on medicine, which may seem a little strange to people because you know, we think of doctors, again, as public servants, people who are there to help us. But the, the observation I like to make is, like, have you ever lied to your doctor? Everybody's lied to their doctor. Everyone goes into their doctor afraid they're going to get in trouble for not eating right or for not exercising enough or for smoking too much or for drinking too much. You do not tell your doctor about those Flaming Hot Cheetos that you eat as, well, as a Well, I don't meal. go to the doctor. So, but even if I did, I would not tell them about the Flaming Hot Cheetos that I love so much. But, like, you don't lie to your servants. If you have a cook 
and you say, I want two pork chops for dinner, and the cook says, no, you're only going to get one because I think you're being unhealthy. That cook is fired. You know, you find another cook. But with doctors, we don't have that option. Not only we don't really have a, much of a choice when it comes to doctor selection because of the extreme measures the government and the AMA go to to limit who can become a doctor and how you get the license to become a doctor, but the doctors themselves serve as these gatekeepers that decide what medicine we're allowed to have, what, what treatments we're allowed to have. And in some cases, they're, they're basically extorting you. They will say you have to engage in these certain behaviors or else I'm not going to give you your prescription. Uh, and these are not just for, I mean, I, I am talking about opioids, but I'm also talking about non-addictive, non-habit-forming, non-dangerous drugs, things like penicillin or uh, blood pressure medicine. There's no reason why these shouldn't be over-the-counter drugs. But in order to get these life-saving medicines, you have to go get a, the approval of a gatekeeper who's a doctor, do what they tell you to do, pay what they tell you to pay. Um, if you don't behave in the way that they approve of, if you're overweight or you're too old or you engage in risky behavior, they can deny you insurance, they can deny you treatment, they can deny you payment. And it's it really limits your ability as a free American to choose your own path um, in terms of how healthy you want to be, what measures you want to take to protect your own health. How, how loud is that? Uh, it's pretty loud. You guys are dominating. So we, we have... We have some sort of major catastrophic hap event happening right outside the studio, yeah. so you'll just have to bear with us. Mm -hmm. So I, I, th I think you're being a little too tough on doctors because I think, I think it's uh, government manipulation of the, of this, the uh, distribution of, of medicine and healthcare that has turned um, doctors into bureaucrats. Yeah, and I, I want to point out that it's, I'm not really picking on the individual doctors because there's a lot of great people who are doctors and people tend to go into medicine with the idea of helping people um, and the Hippocratic Oath and all that. But what I'm, I'm using it as a shorthand to d discuss the medical establishment, the yeah. bureaucracy, particularly the AMA. I think the AMA does a lot of damage. Um, they limit who can become doctors. They limit uh, your choice because they won't allow doctors to advertise. Uh, if you want to change your doctor, it's hard to find another good one because there's no advertising. There's no way of knowing who's good and who's not. Uh, so well, my insurance really doesn't allow me to go shopping for a doctor. Once you, yeah. once you get one and they actually accept your appointment, you you cling to it with your with your cold dead hands. Sure. And, and that has everything to do with, uh, um, in my case, Obamacare, but certainly the entire three tier system where where insurance companies make decisions for us. So I, I just think I feel like individual doctors um, um, to a person that I've met. Um, they, they they got into this into their profession because they want to serve patients. Yeah, and it's it's that manipulation that that creates that. I think I think the same thing applies to teachers. And we're always yeah. picking on on the teachers union, but it, we we should be more careful about distinguishing between teachers that that are doing something that is it's one of the one of the coolest professions, um, I think, but. They've become bureaucrats. I like to pick on teachers because it makes everybody mad. Everybody loves teachers. And whenever you pick on them, everybody just like, it's like kicking over an anthill. Everybody just goes crazy. And how dare you attack teachers? But yeah, in all seriousness, it is, it's the, the education bureaucracy that basically stems from the Department of Education, which was founded in the 70s under Jimmy Carter. Um, but it also stems from just the, the basic compulsory education laws that we have in this country where you are... As a child, up until the age of 18, you're legally required to attend the school from a certain period of time in your life, most of your life, and you have no choice. You, and usually your school is determined by where you live, not by what school you want to go to. Uh, and I think that's what one of the problems we see with, uh, with kids today is you, you know, we have all these mass shootings in school and everyone says we have to get guns out of school, we have to get guns out of school. I think maybe we got to get the kids out of the schools because you don't see mass shootings happening in McDonald's or, hot, or uh, shopping malls or playgrounds or places where kids hang out. Uh, you see them happening in schools. And the reason I think, this is just my theory, is that kids can't leave. They're stuck there day after day with people who bully them, with people who torture them, with uh, a system that t incessantly tests them and compares them to other children and publicly humiliates them, and there's no escape. There's no way out. And so, of course, some people are going to get pushed past the breaking point in that system. So you agree with Roger Waters from Pink We don't Floyd. need no education. I would change it to we don't need no schooling because I think education is a wonderful thing. But I think schooling all too often is just babysitting and uh, conditioning to, to behave in a certain way that is approved by society and not actually educating. I think you can get a far better education by going elsewhere. And 
and to to make it personal, your your parents were smart enough not to force you through the the public education machine. Um, you are a product of unschooling. Explain yes. to people what the hell that is. So my parents both had a very unpleasant time in school, and when they had children, they said we really don't want to subject our kids to that. And they did a lot of research. And there's this philosophy called unschooling, which was founded by a guy named John Holt, who is an excellent writer and researcher and educator, and everyone should read his books if they haven't. Um, but the idea is basically that children are natural learners. And you can observe this if you've ever been around children uh, before they get to school age, like five and under. Kids absorb knowledge like a sponge. They're interested in everything. They're fascinated. They like ask a four-year-old boy about dinosaurs, and you'll, hear, you'll be there for hours, hearing more than you ever wanted to hear about dinosaurs, because they love learning. Um, and if you just let them explore their interests and live their life in the world, they will learn a lot and they'll learn what they need to learn and they'll learn more than they will if you stick them in a windowless room for eight hours a day and say you're going to study math and you're going to study spelling and you're going to study geography uh, and you're going not only are you going to study these things, you're going to keep to a rigid timetable that is determined by your biological age, which really is meaningless because everybody develops at a different rate. Everybody's brain develops at a different rate. Uh, just sticking kids at the same age together and expecting them all to be in the same place at the same time completely ignores the reality of how humans develop. So how did, how did that work out for you? It, tell me tell me how this method, you know, this theoretical method mm. that, that kids can figure stuff out, uh, What where did it take you? So I didn't attend school at all um, until I, went, I was 18 and I went to college. And I spent my time reading a lot uh, I did some math workbooks because I wanted to be good at math because I was interested in it and also because I wanted to be able to pass the SAT and get into college. I read a lot of history. I read a lot of other things that I was interested in. I studied Latin in high school. Um, and at some point I decided I wanted to go to college and get an education there. So I did. And I got good scores on the SAT. I got good grades in college. Uh, after I finished in college, I went to music school and studied music for a while. And after I did that, I went to graduate school and studied economics. And now that led me to where I am here. But I never felt behind. I never felt like I was missing out on anything. I always had all the knowledge I needed. And the most important thing is that I learned how to teach myself things. So if I ever ran into an area where I felt like I was lacking or I needed to catch up, which didn't happen often, um, I could. I knew how. I'd go to the library, get a book before the Internet or on the Internet, go find a site, learn it, learn it in a, a week and then. I'm caught up, you know, and I think you'll find things that things that kids spend years studying in primary school, elementary school. If you give them time until they're ready, if they're if you wait for their brains and their interest and their intuition to be ready for it, they can pick it up in a flash. A couple days, they got it. There's no reason to te like force a kid who's six years old to learn to read for two years. When if you let them wait till they're eight, they can learn to read in a couple weeks. Yeah, it's amazing. They used they used to be sort of a core American ethos and, and it just in, just the sort of entrepreneurial ability to figure stuff out mm -hmm. and work through a problem and find a solution. I, it's fascinating in old Eastern Bloc countries we, um, we do a lot of speaking in, in, in former Soviet countries. That is so loud. It's just loud. getting louder and louder. I think there's a garbage truck right behind this, this studio. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so when you go to former Soviet bloc countries, one of the things I've noticed, particularly with older generations, people that, that were born under communism and, and educated under communism, they don't have the ability um, to critically think their way out of a problem. Yeah. And so, and it, and it can be silly mundane things. You know, you're at a conference and, and the sound system's not working and, and people just stare at each other. They don't know what to do. Um, whereas Americans at least used to be able to just like, ah, it's a problem. We'll figure it out. And and I think I think public education. One of the one of the one of the crises in public education is that um, kids don't really know how to think anymore because they're not allowed to think. Absolutely. I studied Russian in college, and one of my Russian professors told me the story about Soviet Union dissolving. And I haven't been able to independently verify it. I've looked it up, but I haven't been able to find anything on it. So I don't know if it's true, but I found it a great story. So I'm going to repeat it anyway. Um, he said there was shops that would sell various items like bread or food. Uh, and they, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Soviet Union had always set prices. They said, you know, you're going to charge this much for a loaf of bread. You're going to charge this much for a pint of milk and so on. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed, they came in and said, okay, 
that's done. We now have a market economy. You can set prices whatever you want for your bread or your milk or whatever. And the shops had no idea what to do. They had never set their own prices. They had no way of figuring it out. They didn't know how markets or supply and demand worked at all. And people would set the price of bread at $100 a loaf because they're like, oh, I can charge whatever I want. I'll raise the price, make it $100 a loaf. And nobody bought the bread, and so they'd throw it out at the end of the day. And the next day, they'd charge $100 a loaf, and nobody would buy it, and they'd throw it out at the end of the day. And it never occurred to them that they had to lower the price to get people to buy it. Uh, and I think that's the consequence of when you deprive people of the opportunity to solve problems on their own, to figure things out on their own. They get this kind of paralysis in their brain, and they can't figure out how to solve basic problems that the rest of us wouldn't even think twice about. So um, read a certain way, your book could be deeply depressing because you're you're sort of red-pilling us and, mm. and revealing that, that all of these authority figures that we thought were helping us are actually the problem. So I'm now Keanu Reeves, and I've, I've pulled the, the wires out of the back of my neck. Mm. Um, what, what do I have to look forward to? Like, what's the upside here? Well, it, it's like the 12-step programs say, Matt. The first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. So really the, the modest goal of the book is to just get people to think about the world a little bit differently and to say, oh, these people I thought were serving me are not actually serving me. They're trying to control me. And maybe you'll treat them with a little bit more suspicion and be a little bit more resistant and try to assert your independence a little bit more than you otherwise would have if you hadn't read the book. Um, so that's what I'm hoping happens. It's, a, it's an incremental change. You know, all change is incremental. And I'm hoping that we, like, one step at a time we can kind of get back to a society where we don't depend on the government for everything. We don't depend on experts to tell us every aspect of life. Uh, and we start to think for ourselves again. I don't think it's that depressing. I think, well, maybe it's not depressing for me because I've had these ideas for a long time and I've gotten used to them. But I think once you get past that stage, you can realize we can build something better if we work together on this stuff. Your personal story about um, unschooling, I think, is is sort of the... Is, is a great story to explain to people how it is that really beautiful things can happen when people aren't told what to do. Yeah. And, and that, that's sort of the whole Hayekian enterprise when he talks about spontaneous order. It's like, and things, things are going to get better. Things uh, are going to be created and there's going to be more prosperity and there's going to be beautiful music and all the things that, that free people do. But, it's it's kind of hard to tell that story because we don't actually know what's what's around the corner. Yeah, and it's one of the difficult things about being a libertarian is people ask you, well, if you were in charge, how would this work? How would who would build the roads? Who would who would take care of the fire departments? How would all this stuff work? And the only answer we can honestly give is that we don't know because we have faith in these systems, these markets, these people, these individuals to work together and figure stuff out and to come up with solutions that I as an individual would never be able to come up with. And like I say, I tell people, if I were able to solve all these problems myself, I wouldn't be a libertarian. I'd say, well, just implement my vision and the problem will be solved. But I don't know how to solve these problems. But I have this faith that the 325, whatever it is, million people in America today, if they all apply themselves to these problems, they're going to come up with stuff that none of us as, as individuals ever would have thought of. And it's going to be better and it's going to be more efficient. And you have to let the process work its way through that way. But clearly, no one's going to get anywhere unless they purchase and read a copy of your book. Logan Albright, all our servants, our masters, how control masquerades as assistants. Where do we buy this book? It's available now in paperback and ebook format on Amazon.com. And while you're there, may I just suggest that you also pick up a copy of Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff, the excellent book by Matt Kibbe, New York Times bestseller. Definitely worth a read. And, and you were the ABLE research assistant. That's kind of when we met each other. Yeah, you uh, you gave me my first real shot um, working as a research assistant editor, trying to keep things roughly on schedule for that book. And I think it's a really good product. It was beautiful chaos. Yeah. And, and a final shout out to our friends at the American Institute for Economic Research. They're publishing a lot of books that, that I've really enjoyed reading. It's it's sort of free of the, the, the limitations of, of clickbait modern publishing. Yeah, they're, they've been fantastic. And uh, they are in an era when people are increasingly kind of turning away from books and going to videos and YouTube and stuff. Uh, I think it's great that they are putting out all these really thinky, thoughtful books that other publishers are not touching. So I really have a, a lot of gratitude towards AIER for that. Okay, back behind the soundboard. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.
Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people. Hi everybody, uh, I, I'm Josh Withrow, the Senior Policy Advisor here at FreedomWorks. Some of you may have uh, may remember me from when I used to work here back in the day and I'm back. And if you remember me, you might also remember my, my friend and colleague and partner in crime here, Logan Albright, uh, who is here because he is the author of a awesome new book, Our Servants, Our Masters. And um, so you, uh, you described the sort of having a eureka moment where it kind of something crystallized for you that you realized that, hey, these, uh, these, these servants are not really servants. Can, can you kind of describe what that was like and what that was for you? I guess it's sort of, I, I describe it as a moment in the book, but I think it's more of a process that happens over a period of time. And you really get it working in D.C. among economists and among um, you know, politicians and among policymakers. And I've noticed, like, I've, I've been around groups of policymakers who are discussing, well, one of the examples I give in the book is I used to attend this uh, meeting of economists who talked about savings and retirement policy. And to me, you know, the purpose of savings and retirement policy is to help people do what they want with their money, because it's their money, they can do what they want with it. But I noticed that every time I went to these meetings, people would say, you know, people aren't saving enough money. How can we get people to save more money? How can we trick them into saving more money? How can we design the incentives in such a way that they will save the amount of money we think they ought to save? And it always bugged me, because I thought, well, you don't know how much money people need to save. People have circumstances in their lives that you're not aware of. Some people may have, maybe this is extreme, but maybe someone's got a terminal illness and they want to spend their money before they die. Maybe someone has has a good reason to want to spend their money now rather than later because of various factors that may go on. And that's sort of the whole theme of the book. And, and I'm a student of the Austrian School of Economics, which I know you guys are fans of here. And there's a humility behind it. It's a, a thought of everybody's circumstances are different. They're in the best position to know their circumstances. We don't know their circumstances. And so to have one blanket policy that treats everybody the same when we know that people aren't the same doesn't make any sense to me. You need to let people make their own choices and let them make their own decisions, especially with their money. Yeah, and that, that's a point that you do a really good job of sort of communicating here, the sort of the Austrian concept of methodological individualism, mm. uh, the, the idea that, you know, these people, uh, these, these servants of ours have this conceit that they're acting for the greater good, that, mm. that you just need to order society properly. But you point out, uh, as the Austrian economists do, that individuals act, not society. Yeah, uh, I think this is a very, this is, a lot of this book is about uh, language and about kind of linguistic deception and how we think about the terms that we use. And I think one of the things that we really need to pay attention to in terms of the individualism is people always talk in these vague generalities. They say, oh, the USA needs to go to a war with Iran. And these are not real entities. You know, the USA is this broad kind of abstract concept that encompasses millions and millions and millions of people. And it doesn't act as a, as a whole. The individuals within the country act. And I think you see this in all sorts of policy making when you, if you want to kind of cloud or occlude what's really going on, instead of talking about what people need to do or what people should be doing or what we should force people to do, you talk about these abstract entities. You say government should do this, the United States should do this. These aren't real things. These are just groups of people acting. Nice. I, I, I think it's also interesting. Uh, so you, you, you really take on some pretty sacred cows. You take, you take on some of the most trusted institutions yes. uh, in society very bluntly in this book, mm -hmm. uh, edu the education system, uh, medicine. So, you know, teachers and doctors are two of the most trusted professions in our society. Mm -hmm. And I think you do a good job of sort of, uh, of differentiating between the individuals within the system and the system itself and sort of what it enables. Yeah, I wanted to make that clear is that Although there's certain members of these professions that I have issues with, the book is not really a criticism of individuals. It's not a criticism of individual teachers. It's not a criticism of individual doctors. These people are mostly good people who wanted to get into the system to help people. I have a lot of respect for them. I have a lot of admiration for them. But I think that the systems under which they operate create incentives that result in a lot of bad behavior. And to take the education system for an, as an example, you know, you have teachers who get into it wanting to help kids, but they're not really able to help kids in the system. They are forced into these overcrowded classrooms uh, where they're essentially functioning as babysitters. They are given this curriculum from on high that they have to enforce. They're saying the kids have to have these grades. They have to know these things by this time. They have to take this test. They have to get this score on this test. Um, and it, it completely ignores how children learn. It completely ignores what's best for the children. It completely ignores what's best for the teachers. It's all about what's best for the bureaucracy. Hmm. 
The systems perpetuate themselves. I, it, I think it's interesting too how you talk about uh, in healthcare. One of the most everybody assumes that that the healthcare system is just to help people, mm. and that might be the intent of it. But how anything that involves the distribution of money comes with strings. Any any welfare benefit, any uh, anything like that. And I think a good example of that is uh, you know in in, in Obamacare. Mm. Uh, so, so some of the authors of that bill were actually fairly explicit about their desire to use the healthcare system to sort of control people's behavior. You had the infamous, uh, you know, <laughs> you had Elena Kagan not being able to say that she wouldn't use the law to force people to eat their broccoli, for example. Right. Or Ezekiel Emanuel, one of the authors of Obamacare, literally saying that, you know, the government should be able to designate when per a person has lived a complete life and therefore should no longer be mm -hmm. receive healthcare. That, that kind of direct control over people's lives that people, people want to think that the bureaucrats don't think this way but they do. This is a really insidious thing about the universal health care plans that we're now seeing from presidential candidates like Elizabeth Warren and others. Um, they, they say they want everybody to have medical care. It sounds wonderful. We want everybody to get treatment. We want everybody to get care. But as any teenager has, knows who's grown up in a house, they, your father says, as long as you live under my roof, as long as I'm paying the bills, you've got to play by my rules. And ordinarily, in a free market system, the choices you make about your life, because almost every choice you make in your life will have a health consequence of some kind or another. The choices you make are yours, and you live with the consequences. But when you have then offloaded those consequences onto a system where the taxpayers are paying your bills, where the government is paying your bills, suddenly other people have an incentive to control your choices. If you are a smoker or you eat too much or you eat the wrong things or you drink too much or you don't exercise enough or any number of things, people start to say, hey, wait a minute, that's costing me money because now I have to pay for your bypass surgery. Now I have to pay for your cancer treatment. Um, and so I have an incentive to try to stop you from doing those things. It's really none of my business. I should be able to let people live the way they want to live, make trade-offs. You know, there's obviously trade-offs between the kind of decisions we want to make to get pleasure here and now and the long-term consequences of our health. We should be able to make those trade-offs. But when you have offloaded the system into one in which the bills are being paid by someone else, that person then has an incentive and the ability to try to coerce you, to try to corral your decisions and make sure you are living a life that will cost them the least amount of money possible. And I think we're in danger of surrendering so much of our autonomy to a healthcare system as we get closer and closer to a single-payer system, as we lose our options. And it's already, even though we don't have a single-payer system, the insurance system, the way it's set up, has already made it very difficult. Right. And people can deny you insurance. You can get uh, your premiums raised. Uh, doctors refuse to see you. I had a medical issue earlier this year, and I was trying to see a doctor. Doctor would not even see me, even though I could pay cash because I didn't have the right insurance. And it's just difficult. And I, I think our options are being greatly curtailed. And it's partially due to government policy and it's possibly due to the American Medical Association, which puts extreme restrictions on people's ability to become healthcare practitioners, the types of things they can do as healthcare practitioners. Uh, the AMA, for example, forbids advertising among healthcare practitioners, which is a great way of helping people find better bargains, of helping people distinguish between good care and bad care, and of uh, keeping doctors honest and forcing them to keep their prices at a competitive level. One of the things that it kind of in the history, you go into this a little bit in the book, but it was, we both researched a lot of the history of sort of the progressive era and where a lot of these uh, ideas of big government and control of people came to the fore. Mm. The interesting thing is at the turn of the 20th century, when a lot of these concepts were first being put into place in our government, uh, the progressives back then were very explicit in their desire to control people using these, using welfare to essentially control poor people, mm. using using education to sort of to cultivate civic obedience. Um, you know, wouldn't our dialogue in politics be a lot more positive and on honest today if some of these politicians on the left especially, but also some of them on the right, would at least would openly admit, okay, yes, like we're trying to control you. Uh, everything everything about the infrastructure that you're describing in here is a, is an attempt by the people in power to obfuscate that they actually want you to live the way that they want. Correct? Some of them do admit it. And if you pay attention, you can find the ones who admit it. I, there were some quotes from Hillary Clinton of her saying, I just want to you know make sure people live the right way, live the way I want them to. You'll see it every once in a while, the honest ones. The people like Ezekiel Emanuel, who are academics rather than politicians, they'll come out and admit it and say, we want to control people's lives. This is, they're living wrong. This is how we should do it. And there's, I talk about in this book, there's this whole school of behavioral, behavioral economics that's coming out now. And it's kind of led by Cass Dunstein, who worked for the Obama administration. And he wrote this book called Nudge. And it's, it's really scary to me because it seems so benign at first. It's this idea that we can use public policy to, not to tell people what to do, not to force them what to do with coercion, but just to kind of push them in the direction we want them to go very subtly using kind of psychology and manipulation and in such a way that people don't even realize they're being manipulated. Yeah. And choice I find architecture. Choice
voice architecture, right. and it's very scary to me um, because if people don't know they're being manipulated, they can't resist it, they can't fight it, they can't do anything about it. So I guess a big goal of the book for me is to just get people to think a little bit more critically about the people in power and about the terms they use and about the language we use and to think, what, is, what are they really saying? What do they really want to accomplish? What are they really trying to do? Because I don't know what the answer is. I don't think there's like a, there's not a magic bullet. There's not a, a single policy solution to this, but I think it's gonna require a kind of awakening on the part of the American public to say, hey, wait a minute, the people who I thought were helping me, the people who I voted into power, the people who I elected, the people who I pay my money to, they're not really out for me, they're out for themselves. And I think that's what's so insidious about the term public servants is, you keep saying it over and over again, people start to believe it. It's sort of an Orwellian thing where, you know, or Orwell had this whole idea of the language determines our thought. And if you can control the language, you can control the thought process. And he had the whole new speak in 1984 where they would get rid of any kind of revolutionary ideas from the language in the hope that people would not be able to then conceptualize those ideas and think about them and act on them. And so I think that's happening to a more subtle and smaller degree in the United States. And I'd love to see people just kind of think about it a little more critically and start to push back against some of these terms. So I guess the, the goal of the book is just sort of to get people to think a little bit more. And not there's no specific call to action at the end of the book, but I think as, well, as long as we're aware of what's going on, we have a better chance of resisting it. Yeah, I think that's what's beautiful about this book is that, is, is that you're, you, you present this simple idea in a way that for somebody who maybe hasn't sat down and thought it before can literally be sort of, um, sort of world shattering, uh, it, it, you know, cause people to think about their government and their relations to the institutions that mm -hmm. they're that they participate in an entirely new light. I think that's kind of a hallmark of of uh, of, of a brilliant idea put into print mm -hmm. uh, is is how it, it can force you to just totally rethink the world around you. And I think you accomplished that in this oh, book. Thank it's you very amazing. much. That's that's a very high compliment because there have been maybe three or four books that I've read in my life that have had that effect on me where you just it just makes your mind turn a corner and you're like, wait a minute, everything I thought before was wrong. This is different. Something else is going on here. And those books are really important, and I think that we need to keep putting them out there. So few people are reading books anymore these days. There's turn to, and there's a lot of great stuff on, on YouTube and in video form, but I think that books are really important in the way that they can uniquely communicate ideas. And so if I can make any, anybody who reads the book kind of rethink their position on life, that's a great accomplishment, and I'd be very proud of that. Well, folks, we're getting towards the holiday season, and this book here is uh, available on Amazon, I'm just saying. Christmas gifts. Wonderful Christmas uh, gift. It's available on ebook and paperback. So if you uh, have a Kindle reader and you don't want to buy a, a physical copy, you can get that. All right. I highly recommend that you read it. Thanks, thanks for being here, Logan. Thanks so much, Josh. It's great to see you again.